This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker and I'm hosting once again from my bedroom. I'm still not feeling quite back to normal, um, but not too bad. I'm joined by Moya Lovian McLean. Moya, thank you so much for covering for me yesterday. How did you find it? That was, it's always an honor to cover for you, Michael, because I get the biggest audiences that you've built over years of dedicated service to Monday, Wednesday and Friday nights. There's always a lot to talk about on a Monday because you've, you've got the whole weekend to, to, to catch up with. So I, I don't think I can, you, you can credit me with that. I'm sure there was a great thumbnail as well, you know. Um, we have some big stories this evening for you. We're going to be talking about new trans guidance, which has come from the government um, and some more Israeli spokespeople really not doing their country proud. I mean, I assume many people in their country will be proud of what they're saying, but they don't make the country look pretty good to the rest of us. Before that, though, a very significant story, which has sort of been developing for a while. The Western powers have done little to put pressure on Israel to limit its war on Gaza. There also um, hasn't been much pressure or serious interventions from Hezbollah or Iran, so the two groups, well, and the state, considered to be Israel's biggest foes. And in that vacuum, a surprising group is taking the initiative in the global resistance to Israel's war, the Houthis. The Houthis are an Islamist rebel group that control large parts of Yemen, a Shia militia. The Houthis are backed by Iran and have been in a long-term military conflict with Saudi Arabia. The conflict between the Houthis and the Saudis had been very, very bloody. Um, so this was a humanitarian catastrophe, probably still is to some degree, but the fighting um, has now cooled down to a large degree to the extent that potentially um, the Saudis and the Houthis are in line to come to some peace deal. And meanwhile, the Houthis are putting their militants to a different use. So on the 19th of November, the Houthis captured this shipping vessel. Um, it was leased out by a Japanese company, but is owned by a British firm in Britain. And reportedly, um, an Israeli businessman um, is one of its investors. You can see the militants landed on the ship via helicopter, and they then held its international crew at gunpoint. And they would go on um, to dock the ship at the Houthi-controlled port of Hadaida. Now, the ship is still in that dock. And this TRT report shows it's become a bit of a tourist attraction. Today we are on board of the Israeli ship, the Galaxy Leader, that has turned into an attraction. Instead of being a shipping vessel for the Israelis, it turned into an attraction for Yemenis from all provinces. A big number of Yemeni people are touring it every day. Instead of going to parks and beaches, they are now visiting the Galaxy ship. Now it's pulling in the crowds and is increasingly a place of fun and recreation. The visitors arrive on boats and are given a full tour. They see it as an act of solidarity. All this is in defense of our brothers in Gaza and the children that are being struck and killed at hospitals and the women in their homes. But its new status as a tourist attraction is also a message to all nations allied to Israel. Your ships are not safe here. Your ships are not safe here. And Western shipping companies are getting that message. Um, company after company has explained, has announced that it will no longer be using its ships in the Red Sea. Um, and that means they can no longer use the Suez Canal. The Houthis have been a 
attacking ships, as you can see here in the Bab al-Mandeb Strait, which is off Yemen's coastline. Now, that strait is the only access point to the Red Sea, which is the only access point to the Suez Canal. Um, the loss of access to the Suez Canal by major shipping firms will be a major blow to Egypt. They charge a toll when firms, when when shipping firms, when ships use it, um, and it will also have a major impact on world trade. So this map shows the two possible routes for a ship travelling from the Netherlands to Taiwan. Um, by far, the shortest route is via the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. That trip would take twenty-five days. But if the Suez Canal is out of use, ships need to travel all the way around Africa. Now, that would add 10 days to the journey connecting East Asia and Europe. Now, those two nations, the Netherlands and Taiwan, were picked out because they are you know, big um, nations when it comes to global trade. But of course, that route is used by you know, all, all, all trade from Europe to Asia. So a massive deal if all of those ships have to add 10 days to their journey to go around Africa instead of going through the Suez Canal and the Red See. So this poses a strategic problem to global trade, to Israel and its allies, to the United States. And the United States have set up a task force meant to protect shipping in the region. Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin has said this on a visit to Israel. These attacks are reckless, dangerous, and they violate international law. And so we're taking action to uh, build an international coalition to address this threat. And I would remind you that this is not just a U.S. issue. Uh, this, is, this is an international problem, and it deserves an international uh, response. So that task force, the international task force, is made up of 10 countries. It includes the U.K., Canada, France, and Bahrain. Notably, it doesn't include Saudi Arabia. That's notable because bordering the Red Sea on one side is Saudi Arabia. One might expect them to get involved. They haven't. My next guest will explain why, and that's because earlier today I spoke to expert on international relations and friend of the show, David Waring. I began by asking him whether this task force can prevent further disruption to shipping in the Red Sea. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, it remains to be seen whether the Houthis are deterred or not. I mean, they, their initial kind of response, sort of verbal response, has been pretty belligerent. They've just said, well, we're going to carry on disrupting shipping until we get meet our objectives in respect of what's happening in Gaza. So we'll see if they're um if um if, if they follow through on that. But I mean already the disruption is real, you know. Um and um it doesn't sound as though the global shipping companies are, you know, usually kind of reassured by the fact that there's this task force moving into position, um, it's still fundamentally a risk. And at least some of them, if not all of them, um, will probably prefer to continue taking their shipping round, um, round Africa rather than, around the southern portion of Africa rather than through the Red Sea and uh, through the Suez Canal, which is, a, I mean, there's a huge impact there on global supply chains in terms of the supply of energy, um, the supply of consumer goods, I mean, this is it's such an artery, the Red Sea and the Suez Canal and the Bab el-Mandeb Strait in terms of the global economy, right? I mean, you know, you, you've got Europe on the one hand, this massive, massive consumer market. On the other side of it, you've got the Middle East, the world's energy-producing region. And then further on, you've got the Far East, which is a major sort of workshop of the world in terms of pursuing, uh, producing consumer goods. 
So all that shipping going from east to west is really, really affected by this. And um, I'm, I'm not sure just having a greater military presence addresses the fundamental risks that are going to be affecting the flow of um, the flow of oil and the flow of liquid required natural natural gas and the flow of consumer goods as well. So the impact on the world economy could be real in terms of inflation and uh, and so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a big problem. When the Gaza war started, people were sort of speculating that Hezbollah or Iran could be a real threat to, to Israel and their, their war aims. Um, not many people were talking about the Houthis. Um, the Houthis seem to have been the most proactive. Um, does their sort of ability to intervene in events show that they are you know, a more significant force than people had realised? Or does it just show that it's actually quite easy to disrupt shipping nowadays? And this is the kind of thing that we should be sort of getting used to from smaller um, non-state actors, though it's a bit ambiguous as to whether the Houthis are a non-state actor. But can you speak to that question? I think both those things are true, actually. People haven't thought about the Houthis before on this issue, maybe because the Houthis haven't been a significant actor on this issue. Um, but the Houthis have gone from being quite a kind of marginal like political movement with a paramilitary attached to it, um, so 10, even five, six years ago, to a pretty significant actor. I mean, the fact that um, they've effectively prevailed in the Yemeni civil war, um, they've survived the onslaught from the Saudi-led coalition that was trying to dislodge them, um, and they're now set up as a kind of, I want to say a para-state actor or a pre-state actor in sort of northern and, and western Yemen. I mean, Yemen could eventually, at the end of the peace process, split, and you could have the hoof is dominating the significant portion of the country. And so there's a new reality in that part of the world. Um, the Houthis aren't quite a state, but they could be getting there, could be getting to something like that. And where that state is located is massively important, you know, right on the on the mouth of the Red Sea, effectively. Um, so this is a new reality. It's a new factor in terms of... You know, whenever we think about a war between Israel and Hamas and how that can escalate, we tend to think about Hezbollah. And we tend to perhaps think about the militia in Iraq and in Syria um, that are, and in Lebanon, including Hezbollah and others that are supported by Iran. But now we've got to think about the Houthis as well. And it's, it's a big change. You've said that sort of that the Houthis have prevailed. I suppose people who haven't been following the Yemen war, and I, I admit I haven't really been over the past few months, um, might be surprised by that because when that was in the news, sort of we heard about that sort of in a similar context to the Gaza war. You had this overwhelming military force, which was you know, the Western-backed Saudi alliance that was sort of bombing this non-state actor to smithereens, um, huge um, sort of civilian casualties. And it, you know, it, it, it was generally read as sort of a matter of time before sort of the Saudis with their their huge weapons cache would be able to, to defeat them. Um, and from what you're saying, it sounds like that didn't happen at all. The Houthis have prevailed and actually they're more powerful than ever. I think that is the big, big lesson of the last 20 or so years. That, you know, states with their enormous militaries can kid themselves into thinking that paramilitary groups, non-state actors, can be easily defeated because there's such a disparity of force between a state of a conventional military and, and a paramilitary non-state actor or an insurgent group like the Houthis, like the Taliban, um, uh, and, and like Hamas as well. You know, the, the state can get the sense that 
well, we've got this overwhelming military force. We've got an air force they haven't. We've got tanks they haven't. We, we can fire artillery shells they can't. We've got a navy they haven't. So we can just pulverize them, you know, and in the end they're bound to lose. And what, what's happened over the course of the last kind of 20-odd years is that, that these groups will take an initial beating and they may well sort of melt away or fall back. But they've got the capacity to endure um, because they're fundamentally embedded within the population and because they've arisen out of grievances that are that are there within the population and which are only exacerbated by this massive application of force. And so you find that, you know, I, mean, I think I said it to you um, before in a previous interview, like if it was possible for Israel to to eradicate the, the you know the threat from these militant groups purely through the application of force, it would have done that decades ago. You know, um, and and you know we've seen a similar dynamic in, in 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 Yemen, where the Saudis were convinced that it would be a short war when they went in in 2015 with the aim of dislodging the Houthis, who had gone down and 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 toppled the internationally recognised government. The Saudis went in to restore that government because that government was their ally. Um, the, they led this coalition alongside the UAE. And local forces on the ground supporting them. They had the backing of the Americans and the British who supplied all the arms, you know, the, 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 the military jets, the, the missiles, the bombs, the maintenance for the operation of those jets. Um, and there's this huge application of force. There's a blockade around around Yemen, around the, around the Houthi control parts of Yemen. Um, to, effectively designed, it seems to me anyway, to impose a humanitarian crisis on the people in the hope that they then turn against the Houthis. And on top of that, you've got this indiscriminate bombing campaign. Again, it seems to me not just aimed at military targets or Houthi targets, but also against the people generally, smashing up the infrastructure, smashing up the very means of survival, again in the hope that the people would turn against the Houthis. But of course, you know, this doesn't always work. It, it, it can work sometimes. The Russians were successful with it in Chechnya, seem to have been successful with it in Syria. But in many other cases, all you do is you, you exacerbate and inflame the very grievances that gave rise to this armed group in the first place. And anyhow, you know, the Houthis have endured through all of this and survived. And the Saudis, you know, they've they found Yemen has become a quagmire for them and have effectively had to give up. So in the last couple of years, they've been winding down their operations there's, there's been a kind of, you know, broadly enduring ceasefire now for a, for a year or so. And there's now peace negotiations because effectively the Houthis have, have done what guerrilla groups tend to do, which is just wait it out. And as long as, if you, as you're still standing at the end of, this, of a conflict like this as a guerrilla group, you can say, well, we won by virtue of the fact that you didn't win. Um, yeah, so there's a lesson there, I think, for, for the current war in Gaza, whereby... This, this assumption that the eradication of Hamas, the defeat of Hamas was um, was something that could happen and was going to happen is, um, is, is not a safe assumption, not at all. If I'm putting myself in the shoes of the Houthis, right, you know, I, I, I might have people in my faction who are saying, you know, we need to do some you know, crazy big stunt to try and support the Palestinians in Gaza, right? Let's, let's, let's take over a ship. But then... I can imagine saying, look, we're, we're close to a peace deal with Saudi Arabia. Let's not screw this up now. Um, this will just invite sort of the wrath of the West. The Saudis will sort of call off the peace deal, et cetera, et cetera. 
it seems that the opposite has happened, that sort of they've said, no, yeah, we're going to go and take over these ships in, in the Red Sea. Obviously, the Red Sea is bordering Saudi Arabia as well as Yemen. And the Saudis have sort of said, oh, no, we're not going to get involved in the US back task force in case the Yemenis sort of call off their peace deal with us. So does, I mean, are the Saudis too weak to get involved with the United States in trying to stop this attack to, to shipping um, down sort of the edge of their border? Yeah, I'm trying to think about how this is going to unfold militarily. I mean, the Houthis are very, very confident at the moment, and they've been they've been confident through the whole negotiation process, pretty hard nosed for the whole negotiation process. Um, I think it's a sense in which the Saudis are a little bit chastened by how this war has played out, and I, I I suspect in terms of this task force, the aim is going to be to deter Houthi attacks and to intercept Houthi drones and Houthi missiles, rather than carry out military operations into the Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen. I don't think that's that's going to happen because we've just had an object lesson over the past 10 years or seven or eight years that um, you know the, the Houthis are, are extremely difficult to beat militarily. Um, but this is precisely the kind of escalation that the Americans have been really, really, really worried about. You know, The last thing they want, particularly in an election year, is to get into a wider region, regional war within the Middle East. Um, the effect on the global economy, which includes the effect on the American economy, the, 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 the loss of, um, you know, the, the military losses they could incur as a result of that. Um, it's just not something that they want at all. And you've got to think about in turn how this is going to affect the war in Gaza or the massacre or genocide that's unfolding in Gaza and the extent to which the Israelis have leeway to continue to pursue that. Um that there's already, it seems, at least discomfort in the West among the, Israel's Western backers. How long are we going to allow them to continue to do this, considering the political price that we're bearing domestically and the diplomatic price we're paying internationally? Um, and this is just an additional thing for the West to think about. This war is now costing us something additional in terms of heightened oil prices, in terms of we just thought we were on top of inflation, and now that's going to be going back up again. And, um, you know, we could get dragged into a regional war. So I, I suspect that to the extent that there's any pressure on Israel from their Western backers, and there's a little bit more now than there was a couple of weeks ago, I think that's going to increase further as a result of this development. It's a really significant development. Let's go straight on to our next story. The Holy Family Catholic Church in Gaza City is currently under siege by Israeli forces. Hundreds have taken cover inside. 54 of them um, are disabled people who moved there after Israeli forces reportedly shelled the convent they live in. A mother and her daughter sheltering inside have been killed by sniper fire and others have been wounded while going to the bathroom. It's a completely disastrous, dreadful, horrific situation. Now, responding to this news on LBC was Jerusalem's Deputy Mayor, Fleur Hassan Naum. Why is it necessary, it is reported, to start shooting, having snipers outside a church? I don't, I saw the report this morning. Um, the church, there are no churches in Gaza, so I'm not quite sure where the report well, is, but, but is, is talking a, there's about. There's a Catholic church in there, isn't there, that is... Yeah, unfortunately, in... there are no Christians because they were dry, dro drove, driven out by... Well, there are, respectfully, there are Christians because I spoke to an MP yesterday who has family members in the church who are Christians. 
Well, I don't Unless know what happened. I don't know who was attacked. I didn't see the report. I didn't see the report. Just said, I didn't see the report. You're, you're on the radio answering questions for your government. I mean, she's a deputy mayor. She's not a member of the government, but for your country. Right? That's why you're speaking to the host at LBC. He's not just interested in how, how the bins get collected in Jerusalem, right? You are there to talk about the conflict in Gaza, to talk about the war on Gaza. And all you have to say is there aren't any churches in Gaza. Lie. There aren't any Christians in Gaza. Lie. Right? We've, we've literally had the Pope intervene here. And this woman seems to think she knows better. I don't think you would have found her believable, but just in case you were questioning whether there was some truth to what she was saying, um, well, she wasn't. There are at least three Christian churches in Gaza. This is the St. Poripyrus Greek Orthodox Church in Gaza City. It's thought to be the third oldest Christian church in the world. Um, but in October, Israel admitted bombing it. I suppose that's maybe why she thinks it's not there anymore. Um, the airstrike on the church left large parts of it severely damaged. 16 people sheltering inside were reported killed, with 20 others injured. Another church is the St. Philip the Evangelist Church. Um, that's also been used as a shelter. Um, it was damaged by an explosion nearby. There's a running thread here, isn't there? Um, the deputy mayor is also wrong about there being no Christians in Gaza. Um, you'll have seen Leila Moran, the Lib Dem MP, talking about her family in Gaza. They are Palestinian Christians. And the daughter of one of Moran's cousins inside the church sent her this update. Look, Leila, I, I will put you in, uh, in the picture of what's happening. I, ju I, I was able to talk to mom just right now. One of the numbers in her room uh, was okay, and I was able to talk to her. She said we are locked in, we cannot go out, and she has uh, she has nothing uh, to eat for tonight, even only can of corn. And she told me no bread, nothing. I didn't ask about the water, I forgot. But uh, but she said they we take care if we want to go to the bathroom because all snipers around, and they still at the gate of the at the gate of the uh, church the, the the tanks. But I I am I am worried about the food. This is the only thing. That's why I said I will send you a message to 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 show them how if people didn't uh, die from uh, from their uh, muscles, they will die from hunger. It's completely heartbreaking. A relative of a British MP has been sent that, and the government which is doing that to them is being funded by the British government. Right? So our government is supporting another government who is blocking people, locking people inside churches and... Uh, they're too scared to go to the toilet in case they get sniped to death because a mother and a daughter already have been. It's just it just beggars belief. You'll have noticed in that clip the deputy mayor also sort of tried to bring this round to her own advantage. Oh yes, oh there's, there there might be churches, but there aren't Christians, and the reason there aren't Christians is because they've all been driven out by Hamas, right? So her lie, um, which is to excuse Israel's act, they can't bother the church because there are no churches, and also by the way, um, Hamas. Are really terrible. You know, that, that is the sort of media training that we see from most Israeli politicians um, over the past weeks, and I'm sure they will continue 
to do it. Now, that claim there she made is also um, doesn't seem to be true. Um, a thousand Christians are believed to be living in Gaza and one of the oldest Christian communities in the world. It has dropped somewhat. So the number of Christians has dropped since 2007 when Hamas came into power. There were 3,000 um, or thought to be 3,000 in, in 2007. There are thought to be 1,000. I think we can't be too exact with the statistics. Um, and it is the case that a small number of Christians may have been targeted by Islamic militants in Gaza. But senior Christians in Gaza told The Guardian that relations between Christians and Hamas are ones of mutual respect. So that's a senior Christian, not a Hamas official. And a 2019 US State Department report said this, so I'm going to quote it. Christian groups reported Hamas generally tolerated the small Christian presence in Gaza and did not force Christians to abide by Islamic law. So that's the US State Department. The Hamas-run US State Department. Israel, however, is a different story. So the impact of the occupation has been, I mean, huge on everyone living in Gaza, and that has included the Christians. So this is from the magazine Christian Today. The overwhelming answer of the question, why have Christians left Gaza, according to a new survey of local Christians by the Palestinian Centre for Policy and Survey Research, is economics. Nearly six in ten respondents identified this as the main reason they consider emigration. Security conditions were named by 7%, another 7% cited better education, and another 7% blamed the political situation. Only 4% blamed corruption, while 3% gave a religious explanation. That's the explanation of Gaza and Christians as to why some of them have left the Strip um, since 2007. I mean, it's not difficult to find a reason to leave Gaza, is it? If you are allowed to leave is one of the big issues there. Other forms of persecution, Christians in Gaza must obtain permits from Israel if they want to leave Gaza for religious reasons. Everyone has to obtain a permit for leaving Gaza for whatever reason. But if you're a Christian in Gaza, you might want to do something um, like visiting Jerusalem or Bethlehem. Christmas or the West Bank, for example. You're not able to do that, even though it's incredibly nearby, because you're not allowed to leave Gaza unless Israel approves, and Israel barely ever approves. Gazan Christians have, though, reported that the shrinking number of permits granted by Israel prevents them from practicing their faith with family living in other parts of occupied Palestine. So again, a, a similar story here. If you live in Gaza, um, then you're not going to be able to see people in other parts of Palestine because you are divided by the Israeli occupation. And I suppose actually that will be, you know, that might be especially meaningful for minority groups because obviously, you know, it's a small number of people who are um, Christians in Gaza. So if you want to have a bigger religious festival, um, then it would be handy if you could meet up with other Christians in the West Bank and in um, Israel, right? Because then you'd have a, a bigger group of people. In the West Bank and Jerusalem, Christians also come under attack from Israelis under Benjamin Netanyahu's right-wing government violence against Christians has surged in the occupied territories. So a, a full debunking there of the deputy mayor's idiotic intervention on LBC. Um, and Moira, I want to ask you about that interview. Was it ill-informed? Was she lying? I mean, are, are they just not sending their best? I mean, I suppose she's not a spokesperson. She's, she's just the deputy mayor of Jerusalem. This is just what Israeli politicians are like. This is either their knowledge of Palestinians or their willingness to lie about Palestinians? I think it shows something deeper, which is that how big a problem the presence of Christians in both Palestine and Israel pose to hardline Zionism. Because the officials that are in charge of Israel at the moment are you know, the most far right possible. And they are really pushing for this ethno-religious state. They want to maintain 
exclusivity for Jewish people. You can see this in the laws that have been passed in Israel, which separates like separates citizenship and nationality. E.g., you know, Palestinians in Israel can be citizens, but they don't have Israeli nationality, which is reserved only for Jewish Israelis. That was codified in 2018. You know, this nation-state law came in, which said only Jewish Israelis can have national rights in Israel. And it also stated that Israel is this historical homeland of exclusively Jewish people. So since the founding of Israel, what has been done is the Muslim Palestinian population has been cast in this role of as an incursive population on their own land. This idea that, you know, Muslims came in and took the land from the Jews and the Jews are taking it back. Uh, and Israel in particular positions now Gazan Muslims as these Islamic fundamentalists trapped in this enclave for the safety of the Jewish-Israeli population. And if the Gazan Muslims are let out, they'll exterminate the Jewish population if they're given half a chance. But the Christian Palestinians really complicate this narrative. They're one of the oldest Christian communities in the world, especially when you look at you know, how far back they go. Um, and they have been there since day dot. They're a real counter-narrative to this claim that Israel is only a historical homeland of one singular faith, the Jewish faith, and that the Muslim population had taken this land. When in actuality, if you look at this, it was Zionist settlers in the early 1900s who turned multi-faith Palestine into you know, these separate segregated um, states and various occupied enclaves along ethnic and religious lines. And the Christian Palestinians also pose a problem because among Western allies who are quite happy to give into Islamophobia and this idea of like an incursive Muslim population who have to be kept suppressed for the good of the Jewish population, they're much more hesitant when it comes to Christians. You've seen that with the reaction of Nick Ferrari on LBC, who's suddenly become a crusader against the mayor of Jerusalem now that he knows that Christians are involved. He's suddenly like, what's happening to Christians in Gaza? It's really terrible. Um, Which is why people like Jerusalem's mayor are so keen to claim this idea that it's actually Muslim Palestinians who are responsible for reducing or eliminating the Palestinian Christian population. That's not true. Palestinian Christians fed during the Nakba. They were one of the first groups that were persecuted under the Nakba as well in, in Palestinian territories. Um, and they fed, fled since due to ongoing persecution. There's a journalist called Jonathan Cook who writes a lot on this. And he's written about the reason that Palestinian Christian populations, firstly, they uh, have a lower reproductive rate than the Muslim population, but also because they have more links to missionaries around the world. So it's been easier for them to get out of the region under ongoing persecution at the hands of hardline Israeli um, officials and legislation. And you showed there this article from Al Jazeera, there has been this increased persecution of Christian populations in Israel and in Palestine since that new right-wing government's come to power. You know, there's been priests saying they've been spat at, crosses are desecrated, uh, harassers say this is pagan, there's been attempts to crack down on expressions of Christianity. And you see this too also with the Muslim population, with places like of, of worship, like Alaska Mosque, becoming under great attack. And there's a reason for that. Ultimately, what we're seeing is violence against minority populations within this region by a radicalized far-right ethno-religious state. So the Christians pose this huge problem because the West are more likely to pay attention to the Christians, but they also complicate the narratives that Israel is putting out about its reasoning for why it's persecuting the the Muslim Palestinian population in Gaza and the West Bank. One thing Israel are very good at doing is sort of mobilizing Islamophobia in the West to sort of say we are um, the front line against the barbarians and by the barbarians they mean the sort of angry Muslims 
And it's uh, it complicates that narrative. I mean, we should reject that narrative anyway, um, but it complicates that narrative for them that they're trying to push if there are Christians involved. And I mean, when you speak to Palestinians, they would say, this isn't a religious movement, this is a national movement. Right? This, this isn't about Islam versus Judaism. This is a national movement of the Palestinians um, versus Israel. Um, it's not religious. Let's go back to another clip because the deputy mayor was unconvincing. I think you'll probably agree. Another Israeli politician. So this time the chair of Israel par or the Israeli Parliament's Foreign Affairs and Security Committee. So they um, were on Channel 4 trying a different tactic. You heard our member of parliament, uh, Leila Moran there, her relatives, six of them, targeted by Israeli army snipers in a church compound in Gaza. What on earth is going on? Well, that's the question to later, not to me. I, I think that uh, I can only say that we as the Jewish people are used to blood libels. So to hear that Israeli snipers are targeting women on purpose and not letting them leave the church uh, is something that reminds me usually the atmosphere in the Middle Ages before another holiday. Maybe are you saying it's a lie? Are you saying it didn't happen? This is a flat lie, absolutely. No Israeli sniper ever purposely targeted any civilian to say nothing about women. Moya, what that made me think is, you know, if I was in the Israeli PR department, you know, again, this is, you know, a, a, an independent representative in the Knesset, so a head of a foreign affairs committee, so presumably doesn't take instructions um, from Netanyahu's, you know, press people. Um, but I feel like they should ration the amount they sort of accuse people of anti-Semitism. <laughs> like you're speaking to a British audience who've just heard from a British MP whose family are in a church where they're being snipered by Israeli military. And then you go and say it's anti-Semitism to say that. I mean, it's it, if, if, if they use it this many times, I mean, there already are a lot of people who are very suspicious whenever sort of Israeli officials sort of say, oh, this is anti-Semitism. But if they, if, if they use the allegation just this wildly, you know, it's not just cynical. It seems also self defeating. I don't know what you think of that. This representative of this Foreign Affairs Committee literally said, oh, there's not been an, any examples of Israeli snipers targeting civilians. Three Israeli hostages were killed just a few days ago by Israeli snipers. It boggles the mind. But I think you've hit upon something wider here, which is what you're saying is why is Israel's propaganda and the people that they put out to speak for Israel and defend Israel's actions? Why is it so weak? And I think there's two things here. One is that Israel's actions are so indefensible that any argument being made just falls apart completely under the lightest possible questioning and pressure from a journalist. Just many journalists don't wish to do that in the first place. The second thing is these people are not burdened by the need to be coherent because they really do truly believe in this like very far right ideology. They truly believe in this message of we have to exterminate all Palestinians. We have to move all the Palestinians to the Sinai Desert. Otherwise they will come for us. You know, we have to create this ethno-religious state that is exclusively for Jewish Israelis. These are the people who are currently in government. These are the people driving this war forward. And a lot of the world is like, why on earth would you know the Israeli ambassador come on TV in the UK and say openly, I don't think Gaza should exist? It's because she really believes that. She really believes that people are going to agree with her. She really is so radicalized and so far in the source that she can't understand that outside of uh, you know, Israel, there is going to be an even more hostile 
reaction to what she is saying to, is become normalized within her circles and within the bubble that she's with it that she's in in government surrounded by a load of other extremists that they'll just accept that that they will say oh yeah this is normal this is normalized um rhetoric and i, I think we also see it you know to make a comparison in the UK as well, the, when far right rhetoric is normalised with people like Rishi Sunak talking about migrants overwhelming or Suella Braverman talking about invasions. And a few years ago, that had been absolutely unthinkable. And now we just shrug. But that's what happens when you get an increasing shift to the right. You get this increasing hardline rhetoric in your country. When you go into another context, it suddenly becomes this really violent thing that other people can recognise because it's not the norm there. But the Overton window has shifted so far in Israel and in public discussion that even though you obviously have like people who are uh, opposing the assault on Gaza, you do have an Israeli movement that is trying to call for this peace. But the mainstream political positions are now really far right. You see in Britain, mainstream political positions are far right. They are now, I don't even know if we can call them far right anymore because they're in the middle. Um, so it's really a case of the Overton window moving and then these people coming into a new context, delivering lines that they don't think are that outrageous and getting a severe slap in the face when it suddenly dawns on them that what they are saying to this audience will not fly in the same way it might do when they are addressing people back home. They don't realise because that wouldn't be notable. Whether I, I think that makes a lot of sense. So it's not that they're saying, "Oh, this this might shock them," but I'm willing to do it anyway. Like, well, that's that's a completely normal thing to say. We say that all the time. Um, uh, it's, it's a bit if sort of Rishi Sunak were to go back to 2015 and say what you're saying now, everyone would be like, "What?" He's like, "Oh, I didn't even think twice about saying that now because the Overton window has shifted." Final story: The government has released new guidance for schools on how to respond when children want to change their gender identity. Um, the guidance says schools should inform parents before a child socially transitions to a different gender apart from in exceptional circumstances and they suggest such transitions on the whole should be rare. Equalities Minister Kemi Badenoch explained the government's thinking. Schools have asked for because they are uh, struggling with dealing with what is a relatively new phenomenon of children questioning their gender. This is a very serious, uh, this is a very serious thing. Uh, and social transitioning, as we've described in the guidance, is not a neutral act. And it is something that parents should be made aware of at the earliest opportunity. Stonewall say there is considerable evidence that social transition improves the mental health of trans children and young people. Are you concerned that this guidance will push trans children to stay in the closet and impact their mental health or the mental health of the trans community? No, that is not something I'm concerned about. And I should stress that we fundamentally disagree with Stonewall's analysis. We fundamentally disagree with their facts. Uh, the CAS review has shown that social transitioning is not a neutral act. It puts children on a medical pathway that can lead to irreversible uh, medical decisions, the use of puberty blockers and so on. But also something that's really important to emphasize is that just because a child doesn't conform to gender stereotypes doesn't mean that they are the opposite sex. We shouldn't assume that because a boy likes pink or a girl likes football, that they are of the opposite sex. We need to make sure the schools understand what is going on. I think many advocates of trans rights would find that a rather offensive caricature of their beliefs. Um, I don't think people who think that trans kids should be able to socially transition think that if a kid likes pink, a boy likes pink or a girl likes blue, they should be encouraged to socially transition. That's not what being argued at, at all. Um, I think that was somewhat misleading. Um, she referred to the CAS review. That's an investigation by a former president of the Royal College of Paediatricians 
into gender identity services for children, which was commissioned um, by the government. An interim version of that report is already out, but we're still awaiting the final report. Um, let's look in some more detail at this new guidance. So on parental consent, um, the guidance says this, where a child requests action from a school or college in relation to any degree of social transition, schools and colleges should engage parents as a matter of priority and encourage the child to speak to their parents other than in the exceptionally rare circumstances where involving parents would constitute a significant risk of harm to the child. Now, this has been compared to sort of if, if you tell your teacher you're gay, do they have to out you to your parents? I don't think the analogy quite works because the, the advice doesn't tell teachers that if a kid comes to you and say, I might be trans, you then need to go and tell the parents. They say, if a kid comes to you and says, I might be trans, you say, well, if you want us to act on this, if you want us to refer to you with a different pronoun or a different name, then we you know, un, un, other than exceptional circumstances, then that we'll, we'll have to also discuss to your parents about that. So I don't think the analogy quite works, but you know, lots of people are worried about this for understandable reasons. And um, the guidance also says that schools should take an approach of watchful waiting and um, to see how persistent a request is. So the idea, you know, the implication being that some people might grow out of it. It might be a phase. Maybe if you just sort of say, okay, we'll, we'll take that on board, um, but we'll, we'll, we'll wait and sort of watch for a while. Um, there might be a change of heart. Um, they also wanted people to consider or teachers to consider what factors might be leading to the request. So they sort of invoked social media as a possibility. Now, this is a lot of pressure to put on teachers um, to sort of try and make these assessments, I think. Um, they then say this, schools and colleges should consider the impact on other pupils, including any safeguarding concerns. Once schools and colleges have balanced all the factors above, so that's the sort of personal factors, including the impact on the child, they may conclude that the impact on the school and college community is such that it may not be possible to agree to support a request. Now, this is a part of the document that I actually find the strangest, right? So I can, I can see why there is an argument um, to sort of say, oh, well, if, if a kid, you know, is, is young and wants to transition, then you should really explore what's going on before you necessarily immediately do it. Um, you know, if I'm honest, I haven't read all the research on this, but it seems plausible that that might be reasonable. The idea that you could say, okay, it does seem like you are trans. It does seem like transitioning would be in your best interest, but that would be too disruptive for other people. So we're not going to do it. That to me seems very odd. You know, if, it, if you've determined that it's in the best interest of the kid, that the kid is trans, um, that them socially transitioning would be helpful for them. And then you say, no, this would be too disruptive for the community. I don't get that. I find that quite strange. Um, also, how would you assess that? I mean, obviously, again, the implication here is coming from this idea that there is, um, you know, that it's this social contagion, I think is what it's called, where sort of one person becomes trans and then other kids in the school think, oh, maybe I'm trans. How would that, even if you sort of buy into that theory, I don't see how that would practically come into this and say, okay, you seem like you are trans, but too many kids have already said they're trans in this school, so we can't have any more. I don't, I don't get that bit. Um, let's go to a bit more from here. So the document appears to encourage um, against changing pronouns. They say it is expected that there will be very few occasions in which a school or college will be able to agree to a change of pronouns on these rare occasions. No teacher or pupil should be compelled to use these preferred pronouns and it should not prevent teachers from referring to children collectively as girls or boys, even in the presence of a child that has been allowed to change their pronouns. Again, 
on the one hand, this has got a lot of press. And I'm not sure, you know, I've worked in a school, you don't use pronouns, you know, beyond saying girls, boys, I worked in a girls school, so you would say girls quite a lot. But students, I don't know, I would often say guys, actually, just in the sort of informal, I don't think that necessarily increased the respect I had amongst those secondary school pupils who uh, maybe thought I was a bit too informal, um, sometimes ran rings around me. Um, but the, the saying she or he, I think, you know, you wouldn't normally, you'd normally just refer to someone as their, their name, I think in a school context, but this again, to me seemed somewhat weird because it's, it seems to be about, you know, we can't force, um, teachers who might have strong beliefs about this to, to say one thing or another. To me, if you've had that sort of process whereby you've decided what's best for the child and you've decided that changing respecting their wishes to change their pronouns is what's best for the child then if you've got some other teacher who sort of says no i'm going to proactively refer to them as the the other one that, that seems to have got the priorities wrong i mean schools are really about kids right it's about the well-being of, of kids not necessarily the, the beliefs or dogmas um of, of of teachers there so that seems strange to me i would assume if a school has decided to socially transition someone then everyone should be told to go along with that um the next one um also seems like it could be quite disruptive um i think so it says schools must always protect single sex spaces with regard to toilets showers and changing rooms as set out below responding to a request to support any degree of social transition must not include allowing access to these spaces as a default all children should use the toilet showers and changing facilities designated for their biological sex unless it will cause distress for them to do so in these instances schools and colleges should seek to find alternative arrangements while continuing to ensure spaces are single sex which sounds a lot to me sort of like if if, if you're trans and you don't want to use the, the toilet of the gender you have left um then you're going to go have to use the disabled toilet somewhere um which you know forcing that on schools seems i'd have thought you they can do that on a case by case but there we go um the document says something very similar about sports um they, it says they should remain separated by sex um i think more strictly the older you get and depending on the sport i think um tammy hymas is a policy and campaigns manager at mermaids that's a charity that supports gender variant and transgender youth so to talk about this policies this new document um i spoke to her earlier today for her reaction to the new government guidance this is possibly one of the most transphobic things that we've ever heard from this government um and i think as someone who works for a charity that supports trans young people, it's a time of like serious concern. Um, and I think one of the reasons we say that is because the government have effectively tried to erase the very existence of trans young people. They refuse to use the term transgender at any point, and they continually claim that gender identity is, is what's known as a contested belief. Um, so in every aspect, even from the name of the guidance, which is now gender questioning. Um, they've basically taken out the fact that young people are trans and they always have been. So this is a really extreme document. And I think a lot of people who um, work in this area um, and a lot of teachers basically think it's completely impracticable. It won't work. Teachers can't follow it. And in places, it seems like it's in fact, illegal and potentially going against um, existing equalities law. Um, so I think, you know, everybody feels that this guidance is is another example of this conservative culture war and uh, using trans people as a scapegoat in in their political ends so what are bits sort of the specific advice that sort of you find problematic so i suppose in terms of the, the parental consent one so my issue there sort of if, if it was the case that sort of going to a teacher and saying i think i might be trans and then that teacher has to tell 
the parent. I think that'd be very problematic. But as far as I understand it, it's sort of to get to or to discuss it with parents potentially before the school sort of changes the name and changes the the pronouns, etc. I mean, does that not seem somewhat reasonable? I mean, it is a you know, it's an active step by the by the school that they would be making. The guidance at the moment in its current form says that it's only in the most exceptional circumstances should trans young people not um, have to tell parents before changing their name or their pronouns. Um, but I, I, what, what I would say in response is that you know, best safeguarding practice isn't to forcibly out trans young people, isn't to take it away from them, to strip them of their autonomy around the decision. Um, best practice is about listening to trans young people. It's about asking them at what pace do they want to talk to parents? At what pace do they want to come out? Rather than having this, you know, one size fits all policy that is effectively going to put young people at risk of harm. Because in some cases, you know, they may want to be out around supportive friends or even supportive teachers. So the question is, if they ask a teacher to use a different name or a pronoun for them, you know, because it makes them feel more comfortable, because it respects their privacy and their autonomy, then does that teacher then have to say, something to the parents again it's it's a real lack of clarity here and i think we need you know guidance that actually puts trans young people first i mean i would say that not a single lgbt organization was spoken to about this guidance um not a single lgbt young person even seems to have been consulted so this is more a product of conservative infighting um than it is anything to do with actually supporting trans young people to have open and trusted conversations at school when it comes to this idea that sort of socially transitioning isn't a small thing, you know, it's, it's a big deal and it could have sort of long term impacts and it shouldn't be done lightly and potentially it's sort of contentious and we don't quite understand um, when it should and shouldn't be done and when it's appropriate, example, et cetera. Sorry. Um, uh, the government there keep referring to the CAS review. as so that's by, you know, a former president of the paediatrician and, and child services um, or the Royal College of Pediatricians, sorry. Um, and I think in her interim findings, she has sort of said, um, you know, it, it is reasonable to question and sort of have a conversation about when socially transitioning is appropriate and adults shouldn't always just follow immediately the preferences of the kid. Um, what do you make of the Cass review and sort of the arguments that are being put forward there? Hilary Cass's review is still interim, so we haven't had the final findings from that. Um, but I think what she did say is that social transition is not a neutral act. Um, what we would say in response is that there's huge amounts of evidence that say those kind of small things of affirming a trans young person's gender, of using the correct names or using the correct pronouns actually has a massive impact on their well-being, on their self-esteem, um, and actually reduces absenteeism. So, you know, social transition is a very loaded term. What we think of it as is coming out, right? It's about you know, expressing yourself in the way that you feel comfortable. And actually, every single child has different ex gender expressions. So, you know, does the government want to police a change of haircut for, uh, you know, a cisgender child who might decide that, that they want to present differently? You know, this is very specifically targeted at preventing trans young people from being themselves. Um, and I think I would say is that the similarities with Section 28 cannot be ignored. I mean, in the 1980s, Thatcher said, you know, that uh, young kids are given the inalienable right to be gay. It, it's very reminiscent of what Kemi Badenoch is saying at 
the moment that gender identity is a contested belief. Teachers to misgender, um, use the wrong name and pronouns for a trans young person. So what we're seeing is, is a real crackdown, I think, on the very kind of existence of trans young people at school. Um, and, and that's only going to cause harm. It's only going to make people miss school and actually make that kind of really hard decision between, you know, having the right to an education and uh, and being their authentic self. One area where, I have, where I'm not sure about this when it comes to kids is that, yes, obviously, transgender people exist, right? And, and I do think that Kemi Bade, not the languages she uses, sort of suggests she doesn't believe that. And I do think that is transphobic. But I do think, you know, we don't have much evidence when it comes to might some kids transition and then change their mind? Might, it, might there be some social contagion on sort of the edges? Um, I feel like we... It's difficult to have enough evidence because there hasn't been enough time where kids have been able to to come out as trans. And I think it's brilliant that kids can come out as trans. But I do think, you know, I can see why there's uncertainty about what the consequences of this might be because it's such a new thing. I don't know. How would you sort of respond to that? The first thing I'd say is that in some ways it's not a particularly new thing. Um, and actually one of the reasons that perhaps more people have felt confident uh, to come out and express themselves is because of some of the progressive legislation that we've seen in the last 20 years, right? We've seen the Gender Recognition Act, which has um, you know, explicitly uh, allowed trans people to um, identify uh, admittedly if they're over 18. Um, we've also got the Equality Act, which offers protections for what's known as gender reassignment, um, which, you know, we would think of as any trans person of any age basically has the right to express themselves without fear of discrimination or reprisal. So we have a much more accepting legal framework. And what we're seeing is a big backlash here. Um, And, you know, as for um, transitioning, well, look, you know, the evidence shows that even for people who decide that they want to retransition, who they decide that actually being trans uh, for them is not the right option, that the process of having been affirmed and listened to uh, and believed is actually positive for all involved. One of the most harmful things we can do is basically tell kids that you can't express yourself, that you're not allowed to be open or have these open conversations about gender identity because you're scared that they might tell your parents or or they might you know disclose it to an another teacher that you don't want them to know right so this this is really not the way to approach it right this is not the way to make conversations more open and trusting this is a surefire way to make trans people feel more bullied more harassed at school you know Already, we see the fact that over two thirds of trans young people are bullied in school for just being who they are. What we think this is is a green light to those bullies and 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 gives teachers even less ability to stand up for their pupils because they're worried that they might fall foul of this guidance and 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 the school's particular safeguarding policies. You know, I don't want to call it a debate, but obviously, it is a new challenge that teachers are facing. How do they respond to people who want to transition or, you know, change their pronouns, change their names, etc.? How are other countries dealing with this new development? Let's say at, at the moment, is is the UK sort of in line with with what other countries are doing, or are we out of step? I'm not necessarily a legal expert in, you know, what every other country is doing. I mean, what what I would say is that actually in the UK, we have like huge challenges in our schools. And I think those are like, you know, internationally unparalleled, right? We have crumbly concrete, which is putting children at risk. We have the fact that, you know, black children are six times more likely to be strip searched. Um, 
And as well as that, you know, we have the fact that schools have these historic funding crises, right? There's a school where I live um, in North London that is basically having to make its counselling and welfare staff um, redundant in the next few weeks because they basically don't have enough funding to meet their needs. So, you know, does that make children less safe? You know, no, it doesn't. So if the government wanted to really make a difference, I think, in our schools, they could start off by saying, you know, we're going to create open and, and supportive environments through properly funding the support staff that are needed, rather than saying that all primary school children cannot change their names and pronouns, because that is just so unrealistic, because teachers just won't do that. We know that most teachers want to support social transition, both here in the UK and all over the world. That was Tammy Hymas speaking to me earlier today from Mermaids. And we're going to wrap up there. Moya Lovian McLean, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you. And I just want to say, as this is my last uh, show before breaking up for Christmas, thank you very much to everyone who's watched and supported. And a particular shout out to Gaff, aka Gaffar, who has been supporting us. Um, so thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Mm, and a happy Christmas to you, Moya. Um, I hope you have a great break. Um, you still got a little bit more on me, guys. Although actually not much, because I'm not doing tomorrow. I'm going to be here on Friday. Um, you will be in safe hands until then. As for now, thanks all of you for tuning in. Um, we'll be back tomorrow for another show from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.